0: Mark chapter 1, last week we did a verse, have no fear, this week we're doing more than a verse, <clears throat> am not going to continue forever in that vein in other words, um, one of the challenges of Mark is to give uh, these events, these uh, little uh, events, well yeah, events, they're just due and not try to take too much at one time and overwhelm you all. Uh, That's not what Mark would want, and that's not what I'm going to do. So we're just going to look at verses 2 through 8 today. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. And we ask that you would help us to understand your word and that understanding it, we would be able to apply it in a way that is appropriate to our circumstances. Uh, and we need your help in that. <laughs> so illuminate your word. Work by the Holy Spirit within us to understand it and apply to trust you, ultimately. Help us to see something of the greatness of Jesus as we walk away from this text. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. It's a fairly iconic movie, although it's one that I often fell asleep watching. Um, I'm not sure what it was about this Kubrick film, but 2001: A Space Odyssey uh, is rather intriguing in that it starts with the iconic music and a scene similar to this, uh, where you see you know the planet and the sun and a space odyssey. And the very next scene is a primordial scene from what is supposedly the Paleolithic uh, time frame, and you have a bunch of humanoids uh, who are first the victim of predators, then one discovers that he can utilize bones as tools. And if you're like me, as a teenager anyway, you're kind of initially going, I thought this was a movie about space. <laughs> it doesn't quite start at the place you would think a movie about a space odyssey would begin. Now, if you can get into the deeper thought of the uh, Clark book and everything, it does make sense, even though I don't agree with all of it. Mark's gospel is similar in fashion in that it doesn't necessarily make sense. He goes in a place we we didn't expect. He talks in the very first verse here about this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and the very first thing you'd expect him to talk about is Jesus but the first thing he talks about is a desert and a dude who isn't Jesus. It looks a little strange, and yet it will make perfect sense when we get back into placing it within its context. We're going to look today at the messenger, the message, and we're also going to look at what it, how that impacts what it means to follow Jesus. He begins with the next verse as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. And if you have an ESV or some of the other versions, you might notice one of those little footnote things right there. And if you look down and see what that footnote says, uh, here it says, some manuscripts in the prophets. Okay, that is important because what we see written uh, quoted next is not simply from Isaiah. The second part of it is from Isaiah, but the first part of it is from Malachi chapter 3. Now, it was common in that day already, we believe, that there were uh, compilations from the prophets that were indicating uh, for the average person uh, to know what to expect of the Messiah or when the Messiah comes. And these would have been passages that were put together for that very purpose. But what Mark is likely doing for his Roman audience is indicating to them that what he's about to say about Jesus, this gospel, this good news about Jesus, does not arise in a vacuum, but it's part of a much larger story. And it's part of a story that was prophesied years earlier by Isaiah, so that would have been of almost 800 years For Isaiah and Malachi about 400 years and so this is not something that happens by happenstance or accident but is actually something that God has been working toward for many centuries in the history of his redemption and his people the expectation is found in the prophets and again Connected to this larger story of creation, fall, redemption, glory that we see. And the specific uh, quotations that he have focus on the fact that I will send my messenger before your face. Yahweh was going to send a messenger before the Messiah. That the Messiah was not just going to appear, but there was going to be someone who would be sent ahead of him. Okay, and we should recognize this this phraseology here: "before your face" to connect the fact that it's the proximity, the relational aspect. They're going to be known to one another. It's not going to be well. Here's a messenger, and 25 years later, it's going to be. This is going to happen quickly this long-anticipated thing that it has been hundreds of years in the making, when it does come to pass, it's going to be quick. But God is sending an envoy who's going to bear this message from him. We see as well the voice of one crying in the wilderness, or also could be translated desert. What's interesting about the fact of this envoy is that this envoy, he's not going to the Roman Senate. He's not going uh, initially to Jerusalem and the seat of power, okay? He's not going to palaces. He's going to a desert. A seemingly insignificant sort of place. Not a principal city, a desert. Uh, He's in the wastelands. And he's in the unpopulated areas around the Jordan River. And we've got a little map here that, that, that helps us understand this. It's probably between Bethany beyond the Jordan and the Dead Sea is most likely where John the Baptist was doing a lot of his his work. And uh, just keep this in mind, where Jerusalem is and how far people would have to travel to get from Jerusalem to that area. And so that's probably close to 40 miles. That's not okay. a 20-minute drive. That's not even a five-hour drive. That's a multi-day journey that these people will be doing a little bit later on. We'll talk a bit about that. But this is in many ways an out-of-the-way place. It's It's removed from where you would think the Messiah of Israel is going to come. It doesn't in some ways initially make sense. Mark reveals further that this prophesied messenger was a particular person whose name was John who happened to baptize in the wilderness. He's not John the Baptist. I think that's kind of a misnomer. Uh, John, John the Baptizer, as I've said before, is a better way of expressing it, because it's what he does, and we don't want to make it, anyone think that, well, that he's associated with any particular theological commitment with regard to baptism. That's not the intention of uh, how he is called, because he's he's a guy who is baptizing, which, for then, was really weird. That was not generally something that was done. Okay, there were some uh Gentiles who would convert, which would un- who would then undergo ceremonial purification, bathings, and uh we don't know exactly when that started, so that may have nothing to do with what John is talking about. Um or what he's calling to them to. And so this seems to be a rather novel new thing as a prophet. Uh, that is also reflected in the fact that when Jesus is questioned about by what authority did you do this Jesus, he says, oh, well, let me ask you a question in good rabbinic fashion. John's baptism, is it from heaven or from man? To which they never answered, and so he never answered their question. Okay, The implication, of course, being that it was from heaven. This was not something that it was not a normal practice that John had somehow appropriated for his message out in the wilderness but it seemed to be something new uh, that was being practiced amongst the people of Israel. So we see as well that John looked something of the part for a man who's out in the wilderness. He was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt. Doesn't sound uh, inspiring to us, uh, but it was significant for any person who would be Jewish in Rome that would be reading this, because there were Jews in Rome. Uh, for instance, uh, right there, Second Kings chapter one. They answered him. He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist, and he said, "It is Elijah the Tishbite." And so, it was a way in which he looks very similar in appearance in his dress as Elijah, the prophet, who was from uh, the Tishbite. He looks like a prophet. He acts like a prophet. Acts like a man of the wilderness, because he ate locusts and wild honey. So he's living off of the fat of the land, so to speak, like a wild man. Yes, people still eat locusts. Uh, It was common then, to roast them, which is what uh, these are, I believe. Season them with a little bit of salt. Uh, sometimes they were boiled. We see this in Leviticus 11, which permits God's people to eat the locusts. Um, not sure what would encourage me to eat locusts, but, uh, well, I guess hunger would encourage you to eat locusts. Um, the, I have not been to that degree of hunger that I've said, yum, locusts. Uh, but people still do it. Um, and but his were not done with um, uh chocolate coverings to uh, make it somewhat yummy okay uh but we see that uh, the dead sea scrolls in one of the places it's written all species of locusts must be put in the fire or water while they are alive because that befits their nature. I'm not sure how that befits their nature, but uh, you're not supposed to eat the dead bugs you find on the road. <laughs> you're supposed to find the live bugs and then cook them. Um, so now they don't hop, away, hop, hop off of your plate. So he's living a very austere life, this John. Not one of fame and not one that uh, most people would aspire to in any way, shape, or form. But his austerity reflects both his role as well as, I believe, his message. And as we ponder John for a moment, we might think um, that, or we might recognize that we don't need to fit in all the time. He was not a guy who fit into co- uh, common Jerusalem culture. If you grabbed him and then and brought him to Jerusalem and plopped him down, he wouldn't fit in. He'd still look like he didn't belong. Sometimes there's a great pressure that we can feel to fit in. Um, sometimes this is as uh, simple as dress. It's really weird to me. Um, as a someone who grew up Catholic, priests don't look like they fit in. Right? Then you become a Baptist, and you got guys in three-piece suits, and you're like, okay, why a three-piece suit? Why am I trying to fit into business culture? In fact, there was one guy in in, uh, Winter Haven. I don't think anyone ever saw him, except for his wife and maybe his kids, ever saw him outside of his three-piece suit. That was just who he was, and he always wore it. didn't, not just Sunday, seven days a week, apparently, uh, he would wear this. We all are, are tempted to fit in in particular ways. And Some guys today are wanting to wear the skinny jeans so they fit in. Um, I don't know what I fit into, <laughs> but it's not skinny jeans. I, I, I encourage you that. But just a reminder to us that we don't have to... Um, always fit in. That sometimes it's okay for us to be a little askew of the common and the ordinary. Not that we should seek to uh, be really much like John. But we—I uh, we want us to recognize that that God sent John, and that God sent John as a messenger. And a particular messenger, God sent John as a messenger ahead of Messiah. Okay. And so he's a, he's a messenger with a specific purpose. And this is a purpose that Mark is aware of, but it's also one that John was aware of, which is part of why we read from John 1. When he was questioned, he quoted back, Isaiah 40 to the, the priests and the Levites who were questioning him. He had a self-awareness of his mission that he was sent as a messenger ahead of Messiah. So, John's mission, which he chose to accept, he had no choice, so to speak. Was to prepare your way. He was to prepare the way of the Messiah. He was to make the path ready. We don't tend to think of that a whole lot uh, in our suburban experience uh, unless you spend a lot of time in the desert. Um, when I go to the Adirondacks for the summer, it's a little more clear to us because there are trails that get unused for a while, and they start to get overgrown and dead branches fall over them. And if you want to use them, you've got to clear or prepare the trail so that the people behind you aren't stumbling and falling. That's the sense in what john is intended to do here he's, he's to make this path ready uh the make in this particular path is uh, your way speaking of the messiah the, the second passage from isaiah 40 also kind of does this prepare the way of the lord and specifically the messiah here is understood to be the lord god himself God the son which is why remember last week I mentioned don't be too worried by that footnote about the son of god and whether those two words are in the text because mark is actually going to prove that he is god so nothing is added or taken away from the larger text when we uh, with that footnote about the you know which manuscript should we follow in verse 1 the idea the concept is clearly taught in verse 2 and 3 that this one that is going to come after John is God himself the messiah is divine John is to make preparations he's to clear the way he's to uh, the, the familiar practice amongst the peoples of that time and in that place was when the king was coming you're to level the roads You know, you don't want them too many hills, and so you kind of you tear this part down and you build that part up and you make it fairly level, make it easy on the king and those who are accompanying him, his entourage and ensemble. We see something similar today with the advanced teams of the Secret Service. You know, the president is going to Calexico, and so they go ahead of him and they make sure it's safe. We see this uh, more commonly with some of our friends. We have one in... In Florida, the first time you went to her house, you got the royal treatment. Uh, what that means is she cleaned everything. Okay, And then the next time you came to her house, you were her friend. It didn't matter. <laughs> you put up with her mess. Uh, it was okay. But the first time that you went to her house, it was as if you were royal and everything was spick and span and in its place. And uh, I'm sure her husband didn't appreciate that process in the least. He may have been asked to participate in part of that process. But this indicates something. This indicates that Israel needed to be prepared for the arrival of Messiah. They were not ready for him to come. Their king was about to arrive, and it wasn't the the problem was not. Um, That the kitchen was messy. The problem was the spiritual condition of the people of Israel. That was the problem. They were not ready to receive their king. And they needed to change. And so here comes John to let them know Messiah is coming that means that there needs to be some spiritual business that is transacted here. That uh, that you need to turn around, as we'll see. You need to change. And there's something that's true about that for us as well. That when we make the claims of Jesus known, we have to recognize that we are calling people change, that the condition they currently are in is not suitable to meet this Jesus. How did he prepare these people? Well, he was baptizing. He was proclaiming or preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins and now that phrase there baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins is one that has been often um misunderstood and mischaracterized uh, for instance Josephus uh he was a historian a Jewish historian he was born about 4 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus uh but he's okay he's one generation from this. Uh, in his book Antiquities, he writes about John the Baptist. Okay? Now that's important. Here we have an extra biblical or, or a mention of John as a historical figure who did all of this in a book beside the Bible. Wider historians recognizing the reality that he lived. It was not just something that the Bible authors made up. But it's authenticated and verified by in this instance by the writings of Josephus in his antiquities. He also does mention Jesus as well. Uh, but our focus here now is on John. John taught that baptism must not be employed to obtain a pardon for sins committed. I would agree with that. Uh, but as a consecration of the body implying that the soul was already purified by proper behavior i don't agree with that and i don't think john would agree with that either okay he's calling people to repentance uh, he's not saying here you've repented now be baptized you've sorted your life out you've you've uh, you've begun to purify your soul so uh, you know now uh, i'm ready to baptize you uh, that was not i believe in at least what john was calling them to do we see that apollos uh, in acts 18 uh, was familiar with john's baptism but he was not familiar with the baptism of jesus and so we recognize right there through apollo that they're not the same some have kind of implied or stated that in a sense john's baptism was christian baptism no, it wasn't. Not at all. That's why Apollos needed to be corrected by and Aquila. Not only that, but we see in the very next chapter when Paul comes to the Ephesians and says, "Well, what? Oh, you were baptized. Uh, what baptism did you receive?" And they said, uh, "The baptism of John." And Paul then instructs them in Christian baptism and baptizes them. Therefore, we recognize that John's baptism is not Christian baptism. So, what is it? <laughs> ah, we see that it does recognize their repentance. Uh, that they need to repent, that they recognize in a sense that they need to be cleansed uh, because they are not right with God at that point in time. It is a baptism that signifies their repentance. Christian baptism does not necessarily signify repentance. But this word that is used in Hebrew would be shub, to return or return. And in my mind, I always go back to, Chloe eclipse of the Heart. I don't know why. But I hear her singing, turn around. And all the rest of the stuff. Repentance is turning around. It's realizing you've been going one way and it ain't the right way. And that you need to change your direction. Years ago, when I was single, um, a whole bunch of us single people went to a a place outside of Gainesville, Florida to do a, a full moon canoe ride. We went, we went canoeing in some river, uh, in the middle of Florida. Fortunately, we weren't eaten by alligators, uh, you know, under the full moon. It's very nice. I was the, supposed to be the navigator on the ride home. And I sort of said something like, as we're getting ready to get on the highway, I'm not sure that's the right way. And I should have spoken louder. Because about 60 to 90 minutes later, Tom realized that we were getting close to Lake City, Florida. Now, for most of you, that means nothing. It's the town before you get to Georgia. (laughs) We wanted to be heading toward Tampa so we could cut over to Orlando, not heading toward Atlanta. you have to realize you're going in the wrong direction so that you can turn around and go in the right direction and get where you were intending to go. That's a good image of repentance. John is calling them to reorient their lives. And for them... Okay, This makes sense for the Jews of of John's day because they understood that they were to be orienting their lives around Torah. And the implication is that they have not been orienting their lives around God and His law. And so they had a clear sense of the fact that they had gone off the right path and were on the wrong path. Uh, We do live in a time where most people don't recognize the presence of a path. All roads are okay in their book, and so um, it's a little more difficult at times for us to communicate the idea of being lost in sin. Okay, so John had it a little easier in his ministry than many of us have in our ministry, but still, um, we're calling people to leave the autonomous self the self-determining person who makes up what's right and wrong for them and to begin to submit themselves to what God says, what Jesus teaches. Okay. Like John's message, our message cannot be one of cheap grace. We don't just turn to God, but we also turn from sin. Both of those things uh, should be a part of our message as we communicate the good news of Jesus Christ. There is a leaving of sin uh, that should take place, not just an adding of Jesus. It's a complete reorientation of people's lives. We are to offer them what Sinclair Ferguson calls the whole Christ, uh, the Christ who brings forgiveness as well as the Christ who brings life transformation. Justification and sanctification. To put it a different way. John <clears throat> prepares and he recognizes again uh, he's self-aware of who he is because he says, after me comes one who's mightier than I. In other words, John's saying, I'm not the main event. I'm not the important one. Uh, I'm, I'm not the guy you've been waiting for. I'm, I'm the guy you've been waiting for to tell you about the guy you've really been waiting for. Okay? I'm, I'm the friend of the groom who announces that he's coming. I'm not the groom. I'm not the one that really matters. He's pointing these people to the Messiah who is to come and his far greater ministry than John's own ministry. And let's remember, Jesus called him one of the greatest men of the kingdom. So, from our perspective, John is a great figure. From John's perspective, he's nobody, as we're going to see. He want, but he wants them to recognize Jesus is the Savior. John is not the Savior, and we see that exchange that takes place where John, you know, no, I'm not Elijah. No, I'm not the prophet. No, I'm not the Messiah. You know, basically, no, I'm not anybody. And he goes there in a similar way as he goes here in Mark's account. He talks about this one who's to come, who's mightier than I, who's you know more powerful. The strap of his sandals, I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Now, there's a cultural context there. If you were a disciple of a rabbi, uh, there was no task that was beneath you except one. And that was untying the sandals of your rabbi. That was something only slaves could be forced to do, to untie someone else's sandals. And so John is placing himself on the status of a slave before Jesus. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. I'm even lower than a slave, is what John is talking about. We have this idea of him up here. He has this idea of himself way down there. That I think is something that should be instructive to us. Similar to what we've talked about in Philippians chapter 2. That role of humility in our lives. That others are just as, if not more important than ourselves. Jesus exalted, John humbled. He continues, I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so he's speaking about the, again, the greatness of his ministry, of Jesus' ministry compared to John's. All I have to offer you is water. But He offers you the Holy Spirit. He is going to make true on those promises of the new covenant that we see in places like Ezekiel 36, where God promises His Holy Spirit for His people. He is going to deliver. He is going to give that to you. His is the ministry that really matters, not mine, John is saying. Passages like Isaiah 63 as well will be fulfilled. Like livestock that go down to the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So He led you, uh, your people to make for yourself a glorious name. The Spirit of God giving rest and direction to His people is going to be fulfilled in the ministry of Jesus. And so, the ministry of Jesus will far exceed the ministry of John, just as his person is greater. And so, the ministry of Jesus is far greater than your person as one who ministers in his name. And his ministry is far more significant uh, than your ministry, but that doesn't mean your ministry doesn't matter. The ministry of John mattered. And so does the ministry of all of his people. So John prepared the Messiah's way by preaching and by baptism. He was an odd-looking messenger and he had a hard message. But obviously John was um, both insignificant and significant at the same time in a different sense. The desert. He's calling people out to the desert. The desert was for the Jews, which is the people that he's calling to here, uh, who are flocking out to him. The desert was a place of Israel's adoption, we see in Exodus. Uh, We see that it was a place of, of testing, where God would see what was in their hearts, in places like Deuteronomy 8. And so the the desert has a significant role in the life of Israel, and therefore the life of the particular Israelites. Uh, not only that, but we see in places like Hosea 2, when God talks about um, the wayward bride, and it, that's through the the analogy with Homer and his wife. Uh, it's so like Hosea and his wife Gomer. That's how you get Homer. You stick those two together. When, you're, when your brain blips. Okay, so. Whoops, these happen. Okay. Hosea and Gomer, God says that he was going to bring his, his wayward bride to the wilderness and speak tenderly to her there. Now, note for a moment, that reading we had from Isaiah 40, which included the text that that Mark quotes, it begins with comfort. Comfort my people. And so there's a sense in which while John's words are hard, repent, ultimately they're intended to comfort God's people. To bring the comfort of God to His people who have left their sin. Uh, We don't, make people's lives miserable, we, in the preaching of the gospel, are hoping to make their lives um, conformable to Christ and to bring the comfort of Christ to them. Okay? What's going on here, I believe, is that John is coming to begin that process of God reclaiming his bride who was wayward. He's coming to reclaim wayward Israel. And the first fruits of Jesus' ministry is going to be wayward Israel. And then we'll see the Gentiles start to benefit and come into this as well. But initially, it's wayward Israel. And we see that John was, uh, for someone who probably you would see him on the street and you'd want to run... Um, he was successful. Now, Mark uses a little bit of hyperbole, just like we tend to use a little bit of hyperbole, and everyone understood that. Um, all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him. Okay? People were flocking to the desert, to the wilderness, to hear his voice. And we know, uh, obviously, from places like John 1, okay, that... There were people who were going out there, but they were not there to listen to his voice. They were there to examine him, to question him, to criticize him. But a large number of people were going through that arduous journey to go hear John and to be baptized in the River Jordan. I'm reminded of a story that's told in one of the Whitfield biographies by the man by the name of Nathan Cole, and he records in his his journal or diary what happened <clears throat> one day, and he heard he was in his field and he heard that Whitfield was nearby, and he dropped his tools and he ran to his barn and told his wife, Okay, she, she, he got her on, on this too, uh, grabbed his horse and rode to the other town. But the journey was far enough and he was going fast enough that his horse got tired and he got off of his horse and he would walk or run beside the horse and then when he was too tired, he'd hop back on the horse. In other words, he was expending an incredible amount of energy To hear John, sorry, George Whitfield preach. And the people of Israel were expending a lot of time and energy to go hear John the Baptizer preach. Because they thought it was that important. Cole notes that when he listened to Whitfield, it was like his foundation of righteousness was broken. He finally saw himself uh, as he really was, uh, that his own obedience could not gain him anything in the sight of God, that he needed the obedience of Jesus. And he began to repent. And so we see a number of these people who went out into the country to, to hear John, were being baptized and they were confessing their sins convicted of their waywardness convicted of their disobedience they submitted to John's baptism and in doing so they confessed their sins they this is it's, it's really an interesting word uh the first part of it is to say the same thing and then the, the they that's not sufficient. It's sort of like German. You know, the Germans don't use, what well, they combine words. And so you end up having this humongous word, you know, instead of uh, five words. So at least that's what they tell me. I don't know German, but that's what they tell me. And so this is like, you've got speak, and then you take homo, stick it on front of that. But that's not enough. Let's stick the word that means out in the beginning of that. And so they're saying the same thing Basically out loud. They are verbally confessing their sins, calling them what God calls them. That's the idea of saying the same thing. They were speaking in unison with God about their actions. That they were wrong. That they were rebellious. That they were disobedient. And that they needed forgiveness. They humbled themselves. And if we're going to think about following Jesus and talk about following Jesus, we have to recognize that this begins with admitting that you have lost your way and that you need to be rescued. It begins with saying the same thing about your life that God says about your life turning around so that you can receive newness of life from Christ. Remember, John is pointing them ultimately to Jesus. Uh, John is, is uh, unearthing the sins, so to speak, but he himself can't deal with the sins. It's going it's to take Jesus, the Messiah, to die upon the cross for those sins so they can really be forgiven and That's what we need too. So following Jesus begins with confessing your sin. Well, we started by mentioning that sometimes movies aren't the only things that start out in unexpected places. Uh, 2001, A Space Odyssey isn't the only one. Mark's Gospel begins in an unexpected place the desert, with an unexpected person, John the Baptizer. Uh, And that's not where you you would expect to hear about Jesus the Messiah. And yet that is precisely where you begin to hear about Jesus the Messiah. In the life of Israel, this is where God works in His people, humbling them and making them His own. John is, is about to prepare a bride for the Son of God. And I want to remind you that God still brings people to the desert, not necessarily literally, although I moved to the desert, (laughs) but more importantly, figuratively, He brings us to the desert. It is a place where people can see their sin and can turn from it to God. Have you heard and followed God's call to the desert? Have you heard and followed God's call to turn around and receive newness of life in Jesus? Let's pray. Father, um, this is not just the message of a king but a message for his people. So we thank you for the work that you did then in sending John to prepare this way for Jesus. And there's a, there's a way in which you continue to send people, not in this prophetic role or ministry of John, but, but sort of in a similar way of introducing people to Jesus. Help we who have repented to call others to repentance. Help we who have been forgiven to call others to be forgiven. To let them know that there is a one, a person, who can forgive them. Father, work through your people just as you worked through John, so that others may see Jesus just as they did through John. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.